You're now listening to Storytellers. Today's storyteller is Sean Wagner. He's a father, husband, pastor, and car enthusiast. Like many church kids, we struggle and sometimes rebel against our family, God, and the church. Sean had his own form of rebellion, one that ultimately turned into life in a game. Just a little note, please bear with us as we're now recording all interviews online. Volume and vocals may be off here and there. We apologize in advance and ask for grace. So now, let's hear Sean's story. Yeah, originally from San Diego. I was born in Oregon, but uh, when I was young, I was about seven, uh, seven, eight years old, we moved to San Diego. And pretty much so I feel like I was raised there for the most part. Uh, there in uh, City Heights, San Diego, or known as East Diego, or City yeah, East San Diego, yeah. yeah. So yeah, my family dynamic was my dad, um, he was the first in our family to receive uh, Jesus Christ as his savior while we were living um, in, in Oregon. And so he was involved in a lot of different things during that time, uh, illegal things. And so, but the Lord got a hold of his heart through that and mm. he received Christ. And then soon after my mom did. <clears throat> and then um, after realizing that my dad, well, my dad was a general contractor and realizing that he didn't really care for the rain and the weather in there in Oregon. So they decided to come back to San Diego because they're both originally, they're native uh San Diegans. And so they wanted to come back. And so my brother and I, uh, he's a year and a half older than I am. We came back with my, with our parents and we really just were placed in a, a lot of, well, let's just say it was a, um, a stark, just contrast, just a completely different environment from growing up in Oregon and then moving to San Diego in this little area called city Heights. So it was kind of a culture shock to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were raised in, since, you know, we were raised in a Christian home. And I remember going to church um, every single Sunday with my parents and them also hosting a Bible study known as like small groups or home groups or whatever every single week. And I think it was on a Thursday night. And I just remember that dynamic happening in our house every single week. So church and home groups was definitely a part of our life growing up um, there in, in San Diego. That's a blessing. Yeah. A big yeah. cultural shock, as you said. <laughs> yeah, it was a cultural shock going from Oregon to, you know, East San Diego because there's just so much diversity there. And my brother and I in City Heights were, for the most part, in the school, um, Horseman Middle School and mm-hmm. Crawford High School. We were that minority there. So, you know, that's much different from Oregon where you are the majority and you come into a place where you're the minority. You, you learn real quick that you're in a completely different environment. So, um but yeah, that's, that's kind of how that was. But yeah, I had a strong foundation in the church uh, with my parents both being Christians. And do you think that kind of helped you navigate going to a new school and new, new friends, new classmates? Yeah, it did. Um, in elementary school, I think that mm-hmm. that helped a lot. However, once we got into junior high school, that's when things really started to kind of spiral out of control because... Uh, for those of us who grew up uh, in that in the 80s and the 90s, most of us would agree or know about just how a lot of areas in San Diego, LA were overrun by gangs. 
Yeah. And so that environment had a huge impact on my brother and I. And then when I was around 14 years old, she was 15, 15 and a half. Um, we both got involved in gangs. And so, and, and, you know, looking back on our kind of like our foundation in Christianity and going to church and having that being such a big part of our lives, when you're younger, you kind of have that, just that childlike faith. And then as you're growing up and you get older and you're stuck in this, really, it was a really violent environment. There was fights, you know, um, almost every single day, it felt like at Horseman Middle School, uh, teachers were getting jumped. I mean, it was full on race riots and gang riots at school all the time. And at the local park down the street called Kalina Park, it was happening all around us. And so out of, almost out of fear, you know, my brother and I really felt like it was something that we had to do, which was to join with a, with a local gang. And so, um, we did that, um, mainly because of the environment. And so, and then once that happened, uh, there was a sense that we had like this extra family or this extra backup or, you know, that we were being, um, more respected because of the type of people that we were clipped up with and hanging out with. So it was a huge transition, but it really felt like something we needed to do just ultimately to survive. That doesn't mean that other people who were minorities in that environment weren't able to survive without joining a gang because they did. It just seemed like the path that, that we picked uh, in order to kind of survive during that time. So, um, but there's a lot more details, obviously in the whole, gang life. I don't know if you want to get into it, but you yeah, know, there's a lot of stuff that, yeah, yeah, so. I guess what was your, so you, you're in middle school now and then you and your brothers joined the, this, a gang, mm-hmm. um, in order for safetyness. Pretty much. Anything. Yeah. So what did that entail of and how were your parents? Cause I'm sure your parents, did they know, or are they kind of getting a hunch? You know, we're parents ourselves. So I feel like something's changing with our kids. What's yeah. going on? Yeah, it kind of, it started off, you know, it was slow and kind of progressive where some of the guys that we were involved in the gang, um, a couple of them ended up moving into our home. Okay. And, and the reason for that is, is because they were experiencing obviously something quite different from their, their home environment. Yeah you know, not having a father present, not even knowing who their father, you know, was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were a lot of guys that we hung out with that their father was either, they were either killed, you know, earlier on in their life or they were in prison. And so, but these guys just kind of gravitated towards my parents. And I think during that transition and they're seeing us make this transition, they looked at it as like a ministry opportunity. And it mm-hmm. certainly was for them because they had a huge impact on everyone that came over to the house. But you can imagine you know, 10 or 15 guys now all coming over to our house, pretty much, you know, eating my, my, my dad, my mom and dad out of house and home for the most part, because they would go do these Costco runs. And, and of course they were always over there for dinner and all these other times. And so, but so it was kind of progressive and kind of slow. So they saw the transition happening, but they're like, wow, this is a great um, ministry opportunity. And I can recall many times, and my dad had this, uh, I, th- I think it was like a, 87 red Chevy crew cab pickup truck. It just, I just recall him because we were always outside. We we're always playing basketball, hanging out and, and whatever. And he would be out there with his Bible and he'd be out there talking to us by his red truck as we're all kind of sitting or standing by the curb right there, just finishing up a game of basketball or whatever. 
and he'd, he'd just want to talk to us about the Lord. So <clears throat> they had a huge, huge impact on a lot of the guys. But that sense of security that my brother and I had earlier on kind of seemed to transition into, you know, fearing for your life even more. You know, so it made that quick transition. And I remember the first time I was arrested, I was, I was 16 years old. So it was pretty soon after mm-hmm. us getting involved. <clears throat> and, um, what were you arrested for? Well, I was, I was just going to say, I was not going to get into oh. details about that, but I mean, it's kind of a, well, it's a longer story, but, but basically I was, I was pulled over. I was followed by a bunch of police officers the morning that I woke up from a, from an incident that happened the night before and so because of whatever happened the night before, they wanted to tail behind me and then pull me over. They pulled me over on 54th Street, Elkhorn Boulevard, just kind of like right in the heart of yeah. San Diego in the Catholic parking lot. And there was a number of police cars, you know, just guns drawn, telling me to get out of the car and this and that and arrested me. And um, thankfully, what, what happened the night before, I had no involvement in it. So they thought I had involvement in it, but I didn't. And so um, they pretty much let me go, which was which was pretty amazing in that story because they did find a, um, a concealed, um, stolen gun underneath my seat. Oh, wow. So, you know, I could have done some time for that in ju- juvenile hall, but I didn't. And so that was, I believe that even at that time, there was just God's favor protecting me from this path that really that the devil had me on. Um, mm. and so, yeah, so, so, you know, it just started to that, that safety and security of having these group of guys that everyone feared and were known in the, in the community of, Hey, don't go around those guys or near those guys because, you know, something bad will happen to you to like now bad things are happening to me mm-hmm. being arrested, you know, on multiple occasions where, um, people are shooting at me. I've had, you know, my friends get shot standing right next to me. Luckily they didn't die, but literally as I'm right next to them, just, you know, yeah. bullets are flying everywhere and guys are getting hit. And, and fortunately I never got hit, but that would happen on a regular basis. And so, it was more now more fear, you know, more fear as, as the lifestyle and that gang lifestyle progressed and kind of a side note, nothing to necessarily be proud of, but it kind of adds more context of kind of where my brother and I uh, were set in this setting is both of us joined an all an all black gang. So when we joined, we were the only two, you know, white guys for the most part that were joined into these, into these gangs. And so that had a lot of for you guys then. Yes. Lots of pressure, you know, lots of, um, you know, feeling like you have to pretty much perform for lack of words, um, kind of show out is what we used to kind of call it growing up. But, um, so it came to a point where almost a lot of my, my, my homeboys that I grew up with, they didn't even want to be around me because they knew that I was going to be the one that was going to do something that they didn't necessarily want to be a part of mm-hmm. because I was always causing issues. You know, um, it was just a quick run to the liquor store or a quick run over here. It was always, Oh, Sean's going to, you know, do something stupid. Um, because I was always trying to make a name for myself. Yeah. And so and always trying to be feared by the people that were around me. So they would stop testing me. You mm-hmm. know, So it was a pretty wild environment. Um, but there is good news, you know, at the end of that story. And so, but, you know, maybe I'll save that for, for later in the, in the interview. But, yeah, there is some good news. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then, um, so you're 16 and your brother's like 17 and a half. 18. 17 and a half, yeah. Yep. 
So then you guys just progressively just your, your dad's out there. I guess the picture that I'm seeing is your dad's out there just ministering and seeing that, but then his sons are just went into that. Yeah. And then you guys, your lives just progressed. Yeah. From that, even after high school or. Yeah. Yeah. Both my brother and I, he ended up dropping out of high school and okay. he ended up finishing his, um, his high school diploma, a GED, excuse okay. me, a second, like a, a second chance or second opportunity mm-hmm. type school. And he did that alongside of one of the guys that actually ended up moving into our home. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause my mom said, if you're going to live here, you're going to have to finish getting your education, at least, at least getting through high school. Mm-hmm. So my brother and his, and his good friend ended up both doing that. But and I'll tell a quick little story kind of back into back up to that moment where my dad is sharing the gospel with all these guys that are out there hanging out at our house. Um, I don't know how many years ago this was, this was probably close to seven years ago. Um, you know, some of these guys actually ended up surviving and getting out of the gang lifestyle. Uh, one in fact, and I'll probably leave his name out of the, out of the testimony, but a good friend in the gang growing up, he gets out eventually, you know, later on in his, in his twenties. And so, um, now he's married, has, has two kids. Mm-hmm. And so it was one of his kids' birthdays and my mom just happened to be visiting from Washington. And so I invited, I invited my mom to come along and my friend didn't know that she was coming. I wanted to surprise him. And so we showed up to her birthday party. And as soon as he locked eyes with my mom, uh, he just kind of just burst into tears, mm-hmm. grabbed hold of her and wouldn't let go. I mean, just squeezed her and saying, Oh, Miss Cheryl, Miss Cheryl, you know, I missed you so much. I missed you so much. And so all, a lot of these guys have these really fond memories of my parents. Mm-hmm. And as they're seeing us spiraling out of control, they really, embraced us and never stopped loving us in spite of the activity we were involved in. And there were threats, you know, they would say, Oh, we're going to send you and your brother to military school and you know, all this stuff. And we say, whatever, go for it. And uh, they actually sold their house in city Heights to get us out of that environment. But by that time, I think I was like, I think I was around 18 years old. So I was already driving. I was already heavily involved at that point. And so I remember when they bought this house out in East County, about 15, 20 minutes uh, east of, of City Heights. And I remember I refused to even go look at the home. And I remember, you know, my parents talking to me about the house and how it's beautiful. It was on two and a half acres. There's this beautiful swimming pool and jacuzzi and, uh, landscaped, you know, fully landscaped, just a beautiful house. And I refused to go even to go see it. Mm-hmm. And I actually moved in into one of my um, homeboys uh, little apartments for a while just to not even participate or be a part of that because my parents were moving me out of my environment I grew up in and I didn't want to leave there. Um, so I ended up moving in with this one guy. And it was just, it was just crazy. And of course, eventually I came to, to, to see how the house was. And then I of course, moved back into the house and, and really thought it was an awesome place to be. But it was so far away. I thought, oh, it's like, it felt like it was out of state, know, like Mexico or something. <laughs> so far away from my environment that I grew up in. Um, but at any rate, I did move back into that house. And, and so, um, yeah, and some of the homeboys still ended up coming way out there to come hang <laughs> You know, we, we, we would throw some pretty, some pretty wild parties when mom and dad would be... <laughs> Would be, you, would be out of town. And you and you, your friends never c- 
kind of questioned or looked at you like you have these loving parents, supportive parents, things that they didn't have. They never questioned like, why are you choosing this lifestyle? They never questioned anything. Yeah, yeah they did. In fact, that's a great question because what was what would happen is these guys would come and live with us at our house and see this completely different way mm-hmm. to live. Um, and, and again, some guys tell the story even today, another friend of mine, different from the one I was telling before, but he says, you know, when I came into your home and I had pretty bad intentions, part of his story, he, as he tells it while I was there, he goes, your mom invited me for dinner mm-hmm. and we sat down at the table and your mom had fresh green beans, orange roughy, roughy fish cooked, bread mm-hmm. rolls freshly cooked, um, cranberry juice, yeah. uh, milk, and I forget what else was on the table, but he just saw this huge spread of food and sitting down at the table, he said, I had never experienced sitting down at a dining room table with a family before. Mm-hmm. And it rocked his world. And this guy was a notorious gang member. I mean, he was feared all over Southeast San Diego, East San Diego. And so he saw that started making the transition out of the gang lifestyle, but he's still having a a heavy influence on us. And he's still connected with all these other guys. So they're all coming over to the house. Like I said, 10 or 15 guys almost on the daily were at our house hanging out. And so he started making this transition and he's the same guy that my mom said, you need to finish school and you need to get a job. So he finished school and he started working for my dad. My dad had a contracting business in San Diego as well. So he started working for my dad, saw this completely different lifestyle and did a complete 180. Um, He was still very connected, but he was kind of at that point, that voice of reason. Like, why are you guys living? Sean, Chris, my brother's name is Chris. Why are you going down this path? Look at this great life that you guys have with two loving parents who love you guys and this and that. And we were just kind of at that point, it was just white noise. We were just yeah. like, we were so heavily involved, like, whatever, we don't want to, we, we love you, we, you know, you're our homeboy, but we're going down this path. And so he ended up, he was at our house for years, and he ended up moving out, um, got a job at uh, a 24-hour fitness as a salesperson, and eventually moved up the corporation and became a general manager. And not just a general manager of that particular club, but a regional general manager eventually. And he's worked for LA Fitness, 24-Hour Fitness. He's worked for, um, um, uh, not MMA, but um, what's the other, I'm trying to think of the other name, um, UFC. UFC opened up all those clubs, and then he became a a manager over the UFCs, the clubs all, you know, over in, in San Diego. So anyway, he's done really well for himself and a lot of other guys as well. But that's just one story, just to highlight one story is he was going this way, choosing to turn around. We were going, you know, down, (laughs) choosing to continue to follow after that lifestyle. So, yeah, we heard that a lot, Priscilla. We heard, what are you guys doing this for? You guys have amazing parents. Um, You guys should be thankful and, and, and not be doing this. And that was from some of our own, you know, homeboys and trying to encourage us. So, yeah, that happened. We were just like, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's uh, in any situation where there's like the ones that are not doing good and then they see like you and your brother and your background and they want that. They never had it. Yeah. I think, And then you guys have it all and you're like, I don't want it. I think that's kind of unfortunately 
Because I have had my own experience too, where where we're blessed to have parents, supportive parents, but then you want the opposite. You want Mm -hmm. the opposite. You feel like you're missing out on something amazing, like this other alternate life. So now, um, after, so your parents are moving and moved into East County, you move there, but you're still heavily involved in the gang life and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, multiple arrests, um, during, you know, 18, 20, 21, and never did any prison time, thankfully, because all, all those arrests, I was never convicted of any of the, any of the things that, that there was, I was being arrested for. Again, that was just, I, once again, I just believe God's hand on my life, just protecting me from prison life as it were, because, you know, once you get there, it's all, it's all race. And so guys like me who are part of a black gang would have really had a, had a difficult time going to County jail. I had a difficult time as it were. Um, but prison is a whole nother, whole nother level, whole nother ball game. And so it had been a lot more challenging and difficult for me there. So, um, you know, like, like I said, multiple arrests in and out of County jail here and there. And I, I'll never forget. Um, I was on 54th street just before it turns into Euclid as you're heading to Southeast San Diego mm-hmm. and right there on the corner, these really, these, these apartments that were, you know, um, I mean, drugs everywhere. A lot of people living there were, you know, on welfare, section eight, you know, you name it and drugs and trafficking and all kinds of stuff was coming in and out of there. Well, the girl that I was dating at the time lived there. So that was one of my spots where I would hang out. Um, pretty much on a, on a regular basis, you know, almost every day, that's where I'd end up. So a lot of my homeboys that would go from city heights to Southeast San Diego, they would stop there and then hang out with me on the block. So there was just all this traffic there all the time. And they would say, Hey, let's go stop by and say, what's up with Sean and all this other stuff. So they would hang out with me and, and this and that. And so, but it was just this apartment complex was just overrun by, like I say, drugs, but also like cockroaches. It was just a nasty environment. And <clears throat> I remember just being in this little small apartment with mattresses all over the floor and just stuff everywhere. And I looked at my girlfriend and I said, um, do you want to go to church with me tomorrow? Mm. And I still to this day, I mean, I know where where it came from now, but I don't really know where it came from. Right. I know it came from the Lord, but in that moment, living in that moment, I didn't know where it was coming from. So he was, it was just out of the moment. Yeah. We know it was God, but at that moment you had no desire, no thinking of going to church. I mean, it must've, the thought must've crossed my mind. Yeah. the type of lifestyle that I was living for me to say something like that was just so out of absurd out of, my, out of my character. Okay. And I said that to her and it was out of her character as well. And she responded, she says, yeah, sure. So I was like, Oh, okay. So let's go. So I remember the church that my parents, you know, raised us in there in San Diego it was called horizon Christian fellowship. The lead pastor there was named was Mike McIntosh. So, um, so I went there with her and I forget what service it was. Um, but I do recall that the Chargers were playing the Raiders that day. And for me to miss that type of a game, because everybody watches the Chargers playing the Raiders, you know, that was just, we always did that. But here I was, I was at church and, and Mike McIntosh wasn't there that day, but it was uh, a man by the name of Chaz Yandel, who was a part of that ministry for a long time. And he was preaching, filling in for Mike that day. And I remember he was talking about Gideon. And how God continued to strip away his army as he was, you know, coming against his enemy. 
and um, and how he kind of likened that to the story of the Chargers playing the Raiders. And so it connected with me. And so I was I was paying really close attention to this this story. And then he closed it with tying it into the gospel. Mm. And I remember sitting there being being overwhelmed with this story of compassion and mercy and grace as Christ gave his life up for us on the cross for anyone who would believe. And so I was overwhelmed with a lot of guilt as an emotion for the lifestyle that I knew that I was in. And I was overwhelmed by this presence of God, like really coming into my life in that moment. Cause I remember feeling like he was there and prompting me to receive him. And it was kind of like, you know, he came there and he knocked down the door of my heart, you know, and there was nothing I could do to, to like get away from that. I remember just sitting there in the seats there at church and I was sobbing. I mean, I was just uncontrollably just sobbing. Here I was this white kid, you know, with blue Chuck Taylors on blue Dickies. I had a blue Ben Davis shirt on and a, and a, um, my head was shaved all the way down. Um, and just looked kind of just all thugged out. And so, um, I remember Chaz saying for everybody to stand who actually raised their hand to receive Christ. And of course, at that time, you don't know what you're doing. You're just following along. You're just like, yeah, I just received him. I prayed and to receive Christ and I was still crying. And there was maybe 10 or 12 other people that stood up. It was a large church. And so he asked us all to come forward to the altar. And then Chaz locked eyes with me and he looked at me and he said, I'm going to meet with you back over there. And I, and I said, okay, you know, so we, everyone went over back in this prayer room, but Chaz prayed out the service and came back into this prayer room and he met with me personally and really just ministered to me and really just encouraged me, prayed with me, wanted to make sure that I was going to be set up kind of on a pathway where I could, um, you know, be involved in a, and they called them home fellowships. Okay. Um, and I, and I told my parents have a home fellowship still at the house. and he was like, well, great. Join that one. And I did. I mean, immediately that week, I mean, I remember it was a complete 180. I stopped doing drugs. I stopped sleeping around. Um, I stopped hanging out on the block. I mean, it was a, a complete 180. My girlfriend was freaked out because she was wondering like, what's wrong with you? You don't want to be together with me anymore. I'm like, well, you don't understand. It's not that. I see you differently mm. I see you in God's eyes now that I never saw that before. So I don't want to do that because I respect you even more. And so we started, you know, distancing from each other, obviously over time, but I was in the home group. Um, another gentleman by the name of Richard said, Sean, I want to disciple you. And it was crazy because he took me back to one of my old hoods. I used to hang out in over in golden Hills and that's where he lived. And so I'm going back to some of the old places I used to hang out. And he's discipling me right there. And I'm thinking every time I go there every single week, I'm reminded mm. of all the stuff that I had done in these areas of going to go hang out. Now I'm going to be discipled. And so God was just showing me how that all of the things that were, I guess, you know, there's a saying in the Bible that says all, all what the, the, the locusts have eaten and destroyed mm. will, be, will be restored. Uh, and so that was happening in my life. And so he discipled me for a long time. And of course, going to the home group and my dad, <clears throat> I was reading the Bible, you know, every day. And, um, and I remember him giving me an, an, an illustrated manners and customs of the Bible. And he gave me a Haley's Bible handbook. 
He said, when you read the Bible, if you have any questions, just refer to this illustrated manners and customs of the Bible and Haley's Bible handbook, and it should answer most of your questions. So I remember having my Bible, having Haley's Bible handbook and, and this other resource and reading my Bible from cover to cover while referencing that. And I remember I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put any of these resources down. And so it really helped shape uh, a lot of my beliefs during that time. But um, so, yeah, that was that was August 31st, 1997. Wow. Was that day. Um, so then, like over 20 years. Yes. Yeah. 22, 23 years. Yep. Yep. So wow. it's been an amazing ride. Um, I always had, I always had low riders, you know, growing up, I still have pictures mm-hmm. of a lot of these and stuff. And my kids look at them go, especially my son. He's like, why'd you get rid of that dad? That car's <laughs> sick. You know, and I'm like, well, you know, I had to get rid of them um, for whatever reasons, but so then I had this, this vision and this idea to take a 1963 Chevy Impala, which you know about, yeah. you share the crucifixion story, the burial, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And I've been working on this car for nine years because it's a lot of, it's a lot of things that have to come together to make it all work. Um, but yeah, so now I want to use this car to go out and our, our mission is uh, to turn heads and hearts towards Jesus. To like use that. this uh, low rider to really have an impact on people's lives, but yeah. And right now, well, I, well, last I saw, you already have Jesus painted out. I don't. Is it the entire? Front? Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus, his face with the crown of thorns is is airbrushed on there as large as we can pretty much get it on the hood of the car. Yeah. And that part will will represent during the during the narration, the sound effects and lighting, when they press the crown of thorns on Jesus' head, the front of the car will lay down like that. And then it took us about two years to finish the doors. So the doors have Jesus' hands on them, and they're, the doors are over six feet long now because we took a, a four-door Chevy no post, and we welded the doors together. So now it became a two-door, and the doors no longer swing like this. And, you know, Lamborghini doors go up right? Mm-hmm. Or some of those exotic cars, our doors go like this and they slide away from the car like this. Oh, wow. When so the doors are open like this, it creates, the car becomes a cross. And remember Jesus's face yeah. is on the hood. His hands are on the doors and his, now his feet are airbrushed on the cross on the trunk. Yeah. So every portion illustrates, narrates um, the crucifixion. So for example, when the door, one door will slide open and the narration will say something like, then they stretched his arms out on the cross How and the one door will slide open. And then every time the hammer hits the nail, the car will dip down on that side and then lift back up. Of course, there's sound effects happening there where he's, you know, uh, yelling out in excruciating pain, hammer hits the nail again, door, you know, the whole car flips down, comes back up. And then the other door slides open, same thing happens. And then when his feet are being nailed to the cross, the, the rear of the car will dip down and then lift back up. And it goes through the whole sequence. And then towards the end, we have the final seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. We focus on some of those. The main one is, is when he says, it is finished. Hmm. When that happens, all the lighting effects, sound effects, and everything stops. And the doors will slowly close like this. And then the car will pancake to the ground like this, illustrating his death. And then we can have myself or anyone else involved in our ministry to come up and share more of an explanation of the person and work of Jesus, share their testimony, and then share the gospel. And then from there, they kind of close that sequence by saying, not only did Jesus Christ prove that he was the Messiah, 
when he died for your sins, but he proved that he was God when he resurrected from the grave. And the car will come back alive. We'll do, some, <laughs> we'll do some front, back, side to side, and some cool, you know, uh, movement tricks, yeah, hydraulic movement tricks and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be a great ministry. We're getting really, really close. Um, and what's the name of that ministry? Like, how can people... So the, yeah, thanks for asking. the The website is hydrosforhope.com. Awesome. So all spelled out: h y d r o s f o r h o p e dot com. Hydrosforhope.com. You can also follow us on um, Facebook, which is where I do most of the updating with the pictures and the progress. Mm-hmm. Which is the Jesus Car. Okay. So the Jesus car is on there. And, and there's really uh, awesome. You have some awesome photos on there too. Just yeah. so people can get a really good visual of what you're talking about. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It shows all the pictures, all the updates. We still are looking for, we're still looking for five, what we call diamond sponsors for the project. <laughs> um, meaning that it's a, the sponsorship is 5,000. And so, but it, it really highlights that business, that person and or that other nonprofit at every single event that we're at in a very unique way. For example, if somebody wanted to sponsor the interior of the car, that's a 5K diamond sponsor and their name of their business and or website would be, excuse me, painted on the actual glove box from inside the, uh, inside the interior. And it'll say something like, you know, so-and-so sponsored the interior and then kind of whatever their messaging might be, it might be a vision statement, a mission statement, you know, however they can get in touch with that person. Um, same thing for like the wheels and tires. That's a diamond sponsor at 5K. And then we make little little placards, little diamond placards that would sit in front of every each and every uh, wheel and tire at every event. And it would highlight that that person, that business or that ministry that said, hey, they really helped us to get this car done. So there's five total, but I won't go through all of them right now. That's beautiful. Well, yeah. I'm going to be praying that you guys are going to be featured on Lowrider <laughs> magazine. Yeah, I hope so, too. To, I know they're trying to have a new spin um, with kind of pushing away from like just more of admiring the cars and pushing away from the lifestyle, so to say. Yeah, so. I think that's a good move for them because, you know. It's, it's kind of the lifestyle in itself is pretty dark. Yeah. You know, that's why a car like this needs to disrupt the industry because, you know, we've done some pretty unique things with the fabrication, but with the animation, the lighting effects and the sound effects, this, this car in itself will really disrupt the car industry because no one's done this before. Yeah. So to really put Jesus out there at the forefront is really going to have a huge impact in the car industry because, like I said, nobody's done it. We'll be the first one to do this. In fact, a friend of mine, uh, Tim Larson, who I work with at the church that I work for, he did a whole animation for this and added all the lighting effects, which we just purchased. We just purchased all the lighting effects. It'll be under the car, in the wheel wells, uh, in the wheels, in the headlights, in the taillights, inside the car, outside the car. And it'll all be pre-programmed with about three or four uh, predetermined presentations. The gospel, of course, being one of them. And so to go through the whole sequence of the car, the movement and everything, narration, all automatically from me just pushing a single little scene one on my phone. That imagine the people that are going to be seeing that and how they're going to be touched and moved. So I'm definitely going to be praying for that. Thank you. Um, And 
I'll wrap it up now, but thank you so much, Sean. Um, I remember at a church we worked with, we both worked at, um, I always knew in my heart, you know how your God shows you that wisdom and discernment of people who are really grounded in their faith. And, and I always felt that about you, even though I didn't know you too much. And we had a particular staff meeting and I, you were one of the few, and I think you were the first one. I won't say what the staff meeting is about. You may already know though. And I think you were the first one who actually spoke up and talked about these red flags, which were also heavy in my heart. And I was praying and interceding just on my own. Mm -hmm. And I, I grew so much respect for you. I talked to my husband and my parents and I was like, I really admire and respect him as a pastor and being so vocal and just standing for truth, you know, and his word Mm -hmm. and not compromising in any way. So, you know, I just want to share that with you that I really admire you and you're a a man of God's word and you're um, you don't just, you know, talk the talk, you actually walk it. So, um, I just want people to know that too, that, you know, you're, re- I respect you tremendously, you and your family. So, um, thank you for taking this time and sharing your testimony. And I know it's going to bless others and, and just plant that seed of hope, um, into them as well. So any final words that you want to share with anybody? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for that. And um, the feeling and thoughts are definitely mutual. And because uh, I, I also picked up on that discernment when I was at staff <laughs> about you uh, and a handful of others. And so, yeah, I was navigating some pretty... I think good- we all kind of figured out who <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> we, did, we couldn't really talk about it uh, no. at the time. It was all kind of... We just kind of kept it internal until yeah. I, I think that moment. But um, yeah, so thank you for that. And Yeah, I would just encourage anybody out there that, you know, God has given each and every one of us, I think, a a mission. And Mm -hmm. obviously, that's the Great Commission, and we can fulfill that. But I think that there can be a uniqueness in how we fulfill that. And God may have put something on your heart today after listening to the, you know, the Jesus car and being able to reach out to people in a unique way that has never been done before. And maybe that might be you, and that's how I'd encourage you. Be praying about that vision and be praying about that mission that God has given you and don't give up. I've been working on this project for nine years and there have been some incredible highs and some pretty, pretty challenge, some challenging lows. And even right now with COVID-19, everything in the project for a car has slowed down. I had one sponsor that was going to sponsor the wheels and tires that just backed out because of this season that we're in and they were going to be that sponsor for us. So, um, but God is faithful and he'll be faithful to your, to the vision he's given you and to the mission that he's given you. And let's go, let's go and let's go make some disciples together. Awesome. I love that. Well, yeah. thank you again, Sean. Um, I'll be praying for you and your family during this time. Um, I'll talk to you soon. All right. God bless. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Sean Wagner, today's storyteller. Be sure to follow his car project on Facebook. It's called The Jesus Car 63 Impala. Now a short message by Philip McIntosh. I'm Priscilla, host and creator of Storytellers. I pray you and your family keep safe and healthy. Until the next episode, God bless.
you for joining us for another episode of Storytellers. We hope that this story has brought you encouragement. And our ultimate hope is that this story has opened your mind and maybe your heart to an even greater story. And that story is the story of God. And what's amazing about that story is it involves you and I. See, God, creator of heaven and earth, and also creator of every human being, created us with a need and desire to worship and to follow him and to know him as our creator. His story involves a relentless pursuit after you and I, a relentless pursuit after mankind to to really rescue us from our own depravity. His story involves his son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven, so that our wrongdoings could be done away with. His story is the most amazing story. And again, today, your, your time spent listening to this story involves his story. And we would want you to this day know that he, God Almighty, is madly in love with you. That he has a plan, a future, and a hope for you. He wants to continue to work his story in and through your life. And all you simply need to do is surrender to him and call out to him. We challenge you to do that today. We challenge you to learn about his story. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to get one or you can reach out to us and we'll even get you a Bible so that you can read the greatest story of of all. The story of God, his creation, and again, his pursuit for us. We pray that you'll be blessed. We pray that you will grow and flourish in the knowledge of him and that you'll continue to fulfill the story that he has for you.